0: Hello lovely queerlings, Lee saying hi here in this little intro space to bring you a brief interview episode of History is Gay. This is actually a conversation I had nearly a year ago, and I'm glad to finally be bringing it to the feed for you to hear. I hope you enjoy this chat with Liz Gloyne, reader in Latin language and literature at Royal Holloway, where we talk all about queerness in the ancient world, shenanigans involving classical monsters, and more. I also just wanted to mention that in the interim between when we recorded this interview and now, Liz, just this last month in the beginning of July, had a new piece published for theconversation.com about the new DreamWorks film Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, and how the kraken of Norwegian folklore has been interpreted in pop culture over the years. We'll throw that link in the article down in the show notes so you can read Liz's latest work. Thanks for your patience while I worked through some backlogs to get this episode out to you, and we'll have a full episode of History is Gay coming your way soon. Thanks, love you. We've always been here Every single year From ancient gays right up to today
1: See, history is queer Some think it's a new way, but we've got something to say. History is very, 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 very gay.
0: Hello everyone, Lee Pfeffer here in your pod feeds for a fun bonus episode of History is Gay today. I got the opportunity to sit down with someone that actually one of our listeners connected me to, and I'm really excited to bring our conversation to you today. So I am sitting here virtually with the magic of the internet uh, from across continents uh, with Dr. Elizabeth Gloin who is a reader in Latin language and literature at Royal Holloway, She is a classicist who focuses on the intersection between Latin literature, ancient philosophy, and gender studies, and also does some really cool stuff about how people are interacting with and receiving classics in the modern world, especially around monster myths. So there's a lot of really fun bubbles of queerness and gender stuff that I am excited to talk to Liz today about. So hi, Liz, Hi, how are you? I'm
1: fine, thank <laughs> you. I am re- lovely to be with you. Hello, folks listening. Um, I'm coming uh, to you today from a very, very warm part of London uh, mm. where we're under... The made- balmy
0: UK, yes. as usual. Yeah, and totally known, normal.
1: Known for our tropical weather. Absolutely <laughs> the way things always are.
0: Yeah, uh, climate change it certainly is, uh, is a thing. Yeah, um, we got together because our lovely listener Cheryl Morgan, who is a wonderful historian in her own right, back when we did our episode on Amazons and Scythians, basically was like, hey, I have spoken with this person to get a little bit more context about what was actually being said about these folks in this time and uh trying to get, you know, the actual language and context as opposed to various lenses uh being put on it. And so, you know, I-, I wanted to get the opportunity to just kind of talk with you a little bit more about your work and, you know, what we can learn about queerness and gender dynamics and classics and then your, you know, your own kind of how you've gotten like... <laughs> Into the world of monsters, uh, which has has led you down some interesting roads, um, yes. at least from the, from the last time we were talking off mic. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel I should say thank you, Cheryl. Um, <laughs> yes,
0: thank you so much, Cheryl. Um, and I, I mean, like I, Cheryl, we, we will need to get together at some point and have a chat as well. But yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about you, and I've given the little Cliff's Notes versions, but could you tell? Our listeners, a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing right now, and kind of how how you came to classics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, My era is I hang around a lot in the first century AD BC of the Roman period, uh, and I ended up there um, having had the opportunity very, very luckily to do Latin at secondary school. So kind of picked it up at age 12, was lucky enough to follow that through, lucky enough to be able to go to um, Cambridge to do my master's there, did a PhD at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. And again, lots of luck, able to get into an academic job. And my research, uh, the PhD research that kind of set the tone for everything that I care about since, (laughs) um, was thinking about the family and thinking about the family specifically in a system of thought called Stoicism, uh, which was a really popular philosophy that sort of emerged from sort of the Hellenistic Greeks several centuries before, but by the time we get to Rome was really well established in sort of the Roman aristocracy as a way of thinking, and particularly through the writings of a guy called Seneca, um some of you may have heard of him sort of in his kind of other capacity because he was the tutor and then the advisor to the Emperor Nero, who nearly mm. everyone has heard of because of the fiddling when Rome burned thing, which it wasn't a <laughs> fiddle, it was a liar, but we'll put that to one
0: side. Um, uh, but yeah, so but he You mean well- it wasn't like a wasn't a devil went down to Georgia kind of situation? Uh, alas, no. <laughs> it's um, more of a more of a Sappho. Sappho-esque <laughs> moment, yes. plucking the lyre.
1: <laughs> exactly um yeah so uh i was interested in this because ancient philosophy kind of says okay we're a system we explain everything and i went oh cool being an excitable little undergraduate oh cool what do you say (laughs) about the family it's like no families families do not exist in the scholarship we have women there are women in the scholarship what do you do with women they're just there (laughs) no no i'm sure this could not be right i thought to myself um and you know, it, it's one of those things where this is one of the reasons why having more voices and more perspectives and more people asking different questions coming into academia is really important because mm-hmm. there've been lots and lots of work done on women in ancient philosophy from particular standpoints. And it was really important work because even that hadn't been done before the 1980s, 1970s. Um, you know, the thought that one might look at women, what? Why, why, oh goodness, um, <laughs> sort of really emerges from sort of first wave feminist work, sort of coming out primarily from the States. Uh, but you know, you, you get to a point point when you're looking at a system that says, we explain everything comprehensively, you get to a point where looking at elements of that system in isolation just kind of runs into a brick wall. And the conversations around women and ancient philosophy and stoicism in these writers was very much, you know, is this stuff proto-feminist? is this about being sort of like pre-feminist thinking? And the answer was no. They're living in, they're living in ancient Rome. Of course it's not pro-feminist, which I mean, sounds, is really easy for me to say several decades on. But at the time, that was quite important to establish. Right. That yeah. not, this was not the thing. And that there was some nuance going on here. But having got to that stage, people sort of then went, okay, we've answered the question. Gonna put that away from now. Exactly, and the sort of people weren't coming and thinking, "What? Well, what actually are the questions we can be asking? We can be doing?" So when I came and did my grad work, I was sort of asking, "Well, okay, so women, women don't actually just exist in this isolated void. <laughs> they, you know, they they are part of the system, and the system that they are part of that feature in these in these works is the family. It's the core social structure. Nobody's looked at the family. People have written buckets and buckets on friendship." thank you, Aristotle, for writing lots and lots about (laughs) friendship, and therefore everyone thinks friendship is important because Aristotle thought friendship was important. You
0: you may (laughs) hear me grinding my axe quietly there. Uh, Um, We're an editorial-free podcast. Um. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so
1: um, because Aristotle had put so much emphasis on friendship, philosophical conversations through this resulting centuries also thought friendship was awesome, and were really interested in that. But actually, the ancient Stoics had loads to say about the family. and The PhD was all about saying, well, what do they think about it?" then? So going on from that, my interests have really been about what are the lives of men and women like uh, romantically, socially, in the ancient world. I think about literature. I think about philosophy. I am currently doing some things that aren't necessarily thinking about that so much because it's nice to have a break, (laughs) especially (laughs) when you've essentially spent nearly 10 years on the PhD book right from the beginning all the way to it publishing. And you're like, I would like to do something else now, which is where the monsters entered into the picture. Uh, having done <laughs> like the heavy academic work, you're like, what can I do that's different to give my brain a rest from some variety? And then this project sort of was, was on the radar. Because the other thing I'm really interested in, as you said, is what happens with post-classical material. What happens when post-classical cultures get their hands on classical material? What do they do with it? And the thing that particularly nobody had talked about, which seemed to me really weird, you might be sensing a pattern Things, yeah. <laughs> things things that I think are really weird. This is how good research happens. You go, what do you mean huh? nobody thought about this? Why? Pretty <laughs> uh, well, I will go and do the thinking, which is why my book exists. Uh, so <laughs>
0: That's why this podcast exists, honestly. It's like, wait a minute. It's, you know, hmm, not a lot of people have like talked about this. I want to talk about this. I'm going to make people listen to me talk about this. It is as good a reason <laughs> as any.
1: Um, but yeah, so what I realized nobody was talking about was about classical monsters specifically and how they were being used loads and loads and loads about the hero oh you could spend months just reading things about the hero in classical reception monsters not so much and i thought that Hmm. doesn't feel right no and so off i went and thought what actually happens with monsters classical monsters when they get into modern culture
0: Right. Oh, beautiful. Well, we'll we'll definitely circle back around to the monsters. But I kind of wanted to take us back to where this kind of conversation started is we got in touch via Cheryl when we were talking about Amazons and Scythians and the NRA. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you know regarding these folks and like what Ovid was mentioning of them? For, for those who, who hadn't listened to our episode on them, we had kind of discussed interpretations of the Inare, the kind of trans analogous, uh, shamanesses or shamans of the Scythians who, interpretations were that they were using like mare's urine as a form of hormone replacement therapy which you know some trans scholarship kind of took and ran with but you had some more kind of um some more nuanced uh, interpretation of what what Ovid is actually talking about at that point if you remember and can pull out of your your brain which has many things in it <laughs>
1: Yeah, so this is this is one of those things where it's the word that's used is Um and it's a substance that we don't actually know precisely what it is. People have assumed uh, it's urine, but it's sort of talked about as being. Ovid talks about it as in his love poetry as being really important, and we do know. Uh, uh, sort of an aphrodisiac we do know that it does seem to have this aphrodisiac thing there is a passage from pliny uh in his natural history where he talks about hippomanes he says if you mix it into bronze and make a statue of a mare a female horse all the nearby male horses will suddenly get terribly keen and interested in it sexually hmm. which is helpful Um, But, you know, it kind of indicates uh, that, you know, hippo manes literally translates the Greek is hippos is Greek and manes is madness. It's literally just horse madness. So there is kind of, it's said that it has to be produced by a a loving mare. And another way to think of that, of course, would be a mare in heat. Right. Um, So that, uh, you know, this is whatever secretion a mare in heat generates to let gentlemen mares know she is readily available. (laughs) There are sort of some hypotheses that it may be something that uh, comes from horse embryos, but that. Doesn't quite fit with what we know about sort of other secretions from you know w- what a loving mare would be doing doing this presumably by the point there's an embryo involved she's already very well loved we would hope um, <laughs> so yeah I mean I think this is one of those things where people look at look at an ancient text and they see a word and they sort of hope they think they know what it means and, and go for it and then the internet does its thing. But I mean, it's it's still weird and wonderful and and sort of quite fantastical, the, the right? Same time, yeah, you know, there's something very different going on there with what the uh, what the actual substance may have been. But as I say, because we don't have access to precisely what this item was, we really have to reconstruct from what the evidence sort of suggests to us. So urine doesn't. Let's put it this way. If Pliny the Elder had wanted to say you need to mix bronze with horse piss, he would have said so. (laughs) This is not a man who dances around the bush. This is the man who says, do you know what's really good for these particular avements? Beaver testicles. Go for it. (laughs) Tie them to your forehead. It'll be fine. Um... (laughs) You know, he is not going to sort of try and pick a word that isn't straight up honest about the realities of life hmm. as Pliny the Elder. So Hippomanes is clearly something slightly differently technical than urine, as they say. Interesting. Um, yeah.
0: Huh. Uh <laughs> that
1: may well, not have been where you thought that was going, but no, it's great.
0: It's uh, you love uh, a tangent about beaver testicles, your, your beaver yeah. testicles, and your in It's fantastic. I never know where conversations are going to go on this. It's fantastic. Um, well, so okay, so thinking about like the family in the ancient world and relationships and love. Uh, you know, specifically trying to think about. Where queerness, quote unquote, queerness fits in, because that has so many different kind of definitions everywhere. Obviously, most people will point to like Athens and ancient Greece and Aramanos and Erastes. Like, what other elements of queer or, you know, non-normative, like we think about now, um, behavior, or societal structure, gender presentation, philosophy kind of show up in the ancient world that interests you? Yeah. So there is more than you would expect.
1: Um, uh, so the first thing to say is that legally, in terms of legally le- recognized relationships, we're looking at hetero or nothing. That doesn't mean that hetero or nothing are your only options by right, any, any stretch possible. Uh, so first of all, the evidence for relationships between women, sexual relationships between women is really, really, really thin. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it doesn't happen just means it's not documented.
0: <laughs> yeah, why why would a bunch of men write about women in the uh, world? Why? And the
1: stuff that does turn up is sort of like if you dream about two women doing this, then this is how you are meant to interpret it, which is ah. like, okay, that was useful. But yeah, so there's there's sort of a, a way in which that is not particularly documented, not particularly talked about and you know, I mean, in a way it kind of wouldn't be an issue in the same way because in a terribly patriarchal situation like Rome, what you're worried about is you're worried about inheritance, you're worried about family transmission, you're worried about power, you're worried about sort of authority. Um, women having sexual relationships with each other, that doesn't threaten any of that. right? You know, you can't have illegitimate children. A line isn't going to not be carried on because of this,
0: you know. So it's just kind of like a non-issue. It's like, we're not concerned about this, so we're not going to write about it, and we're certainly not going to moralise against it.
1: And the women who are engaging in it are not writing the stuff that survives. Right. And the people who might be rude about it have plenty of other things to be rude about women for. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking particularly here at the satirist juvenile who writes lots of really, really rude stuff. But it tends to be more about women who are too manly. You know, she, she's got... A, Really rude poem about a woman who sort of trains to be a gladiator and sort of Mm. how she practices too much and she's too manly. But you know, that's, you know, that's sort of made into sort of taking crossing that boundary into manly behavior. Right. Ra- and what that means for her poor husband, rather than, and she also sleeps with girls because she's too butch. So, you know, there's, there's a difference there. When it comes to men having relationships with men, the Romans kind of, in some ways, carry on the traditions of Greek pederasty to some extent. Um, it's not as highly formalised as it is in 5th century Athens. There are, however, still some very firm rules about who is allowed to sleep with who under what circumstances when it's considered appropriate. And the critique that you get in the source that you you will obviously hear quite a lot of the time, oh, no, the Romans don't like same sex relationships. The Romans think gay people are bad. But usually you don't have a look at the sources. It's a bit more complicated than that because what really comes in for critique are men who try, men, basically men who prefer being penetrated, uh, men Mm -hmm. who prefer having penetrative sex rather than being the penetrator. This comes back to what I said about Rome being a highly power driven environment. Um, Julius Caesar goes to Bithynia, has a relationship some people gossip and say, with the king of Bithynia, is the problem that he's having a gay relationship? No, the problem is that he might be the passive younger partner
0: mm-hmm. rather
1: than a Roman dominating the Bithynian king, which would be totally cool and awesome within the power structure of the universe.
0: <laughs> right, it, it always comes back to that. It like In so many of these kind of dynamics, it's mm. the kind of value judgment on the active versus passive partner. Exactly. Uh,
1: but again, there's some leeway because if you are the younger partner, it's okay to be that, providing that when you've outgrown that you enter into the dominant role and this is sort of again juvenile great source for sort of loads of guys who sort of are like still still trying to pretend that they're 18 <laughs> Just grow up guys. <laughs> um, you know, who, who and, and there are all sorts of stereotypes about sort of being soft and mollus is the Latin word for soft, and the clothes that you wear and the way that you behave and grooming you go through, depilation, all that kind of mm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Marshall's or the my poet is also very rude about some of this kind of stuff. So there are a whole range of behaviours that are associated with men who've not transitioned into their proper social role, um, which is associated with being passive. To what extent? There actually is a group of guys hanging out performing all of this. And to what extent it's like a social construct of look at those people. You know, it, it is <laughs> it, I mean, we, we know from our own contemporary cultures, right? There are strong so, strong social conventions around strong social stereotypes around rather, you know, what being butch means, what being femme means, what being a bear means, all of those kinds of things. But you know, if you were actually to uh, sit one person down, sit try and try and assemble the group. You'd be like, right. well, you don't quite fit, and you don't quite fit, and your nails aren't painted properly. And blah. you know, <laughs> there, would, there would be a huge range of variations. So even though the group, the group stereotype is attacked, you know, to what extent you could actually have sat down and said, here is this community of guys who are deviating from the norm, shock horror, you know, Right. Cut right. pearls. Um, is a bit tricky. And you've got to remember, you know, at the same time as sort of some of these people are writing these sort of scathing things you've got hadrian um Mm. who has as his lover antinous now obviously there are huge issues about antinous's ability to say no to the most powerful man in the empire it is not the affirming homoerotic love story that everybody wants to make it but you've got an emperor having a gay lover who when he dies makes him a god and builds temples to him and folks go Hmm. you are the emperor you were the one in charge tick box (laughs) <laughs> you know there, there, there's, there, there's a very different attitude and you know this is coming out the same period that we've got people like juvenile like Marshall, like oh well Seneca gets picked up on this I get very really irritated when people pick up Seneca on this um, for writing, saying that you know gay sex is bad what Seneca actually says is not that gay <laughs> sex is bad um, Solica picks up a wonderful example. Uh, he sort of does talk about people who, you know, keep on sort of taking on this role once the bloom is faded off their cheek and sort of parallels it to people growing flowers in hot house gardens out of season. <laughs> So, so again, it's about, that. Being, it's about being seasonal. It's about everything right. at the right time. It's like, no, this is not the right time for this. You grow and you move past it. And the other lovely example is uh, he talks about a particular guy who has his way enthusiastically with men and with women. And um, what Seneca gets really upset about is the fact that he does it in front of mirrors. It's not the bisexuality. It's it's vanity, exactly, exactly. It's the yeah. and it's the luxury of having a room covered in mirrors, which for the Roman period, and mirrors are complicated technology and expensive technology. You know, it's the indulgence and the luxury, as opposed to the fact that there's sort of enthusiastic bisexuality going on. You know, it's the cultural stuff in a much broader sense, rather than a straightforward denunciation of a particular sexual behaviour. So these things are always more complicated when you mm-hmm. go and unpick what actually is being disapproved of, right? And it's it's also worth saying this is all stuff that's being said amongst the Roman elite. We don't know particularly how people further down the Roman social scale would have felt about this stuff. I mean, we can find insults, we can find the graffiti and Pompeian graffiti is full <laughs> right. of exciting things about who fucked who. And I use the word because that's what they use on the exactly. walls exactly. quite happily.
0: Um, you know, it's uh, my favorite thing to, to see stuff from Pompeii, just be like, you know, humans have just been humans for a long time. Dick jokes have existed forever. Both in words and in drawings. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, so that
1: there's this sense in which we don't know what the people who are not sitting in this audience, in in, you know, elite Roman senators, equestrians, wealthy Romans, we don't know what. They would have thought about this. Would they have particularly cared much? Who knows? Obviously, you're living in a patriarchal system where you're sort of marrying and where your sort of um, your property control um, is passed down that line. Where you've got the part of familia at the head of the family. You've got certain sets of structures. But actually, the further you come down in society, maybe the less attention some of that you have to pay to. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't matter who you're going to be sleeping with or not sleeping with because your family hasn't got particularly anything to worry about inheriting
0: (laughs) and And certainly nobody's going to write about it exactly unless unless something was really upsetting the social structure which is why you get writing on Amazons and writing on sleeping with somebody in a room full of mirrors exactly Um, or even you know taking it out of the Greek and Roman ancient world like you have I mean one of our earliest episodes was looking at queerness in ancient imperial China and some of the texts that are like hey this is not okay is not hey this is not okay bisexuality is frowned upon it's hey so you're giving your lover like really high high positions in the military and government and he doesn't have any of the qualifications for that maybe we should talk about that Like maybe it's, that needs revisiting maybe that needs yeah. revisiting uh, yeah that complexity of you know people are so quick to put you know their to own interpretation to assume it's
1: exactly what it means exactly mm-hmm. Um, we do have some evidence of sort of non-traditional family structures going on in these kinds of non-elite worlds it's a lovely lovely inscription which is one of my favourites it's an inscription to a woman called Alia Potestas, uh, who is an ex-slave, and it's put, so really common to have inscriptions to people put up after they're dead, um, normally by loving husbands to the women, normally husbands or fathers, depending on how old they are when they die. Uh, interestingly, but anyway, hmm. uh, husbands, husbands to women. Now, the thing about Alia Potestas is that she is praised for all the usual things that women are praised for. She has been a wonderful woman and uh, she's going to leave those leaves behind very sad. Uh, she's a great loss. Uh, the unusual thing about her is that rather than having one man put this tombstone up to her, two men put it up. Aww. And they are very explicit.
0: Delightful Polly.
1: They are completely. Love. They are absolutely explicit that you know, they all live together in the same house, that she led them together like Orestes and Pylades, who uh, mm. are two characters out of Greek myth about whom there is an awful lot of homoerotic tension yes. already in ancient Greece. <laughs> you know, they've they've not chosen this couple by accident. <laughs> um and you know so that the you, you exactly have this this vision of this little poly triad living quite happily together until poor alia potestas dies and uh, then they say you know now she is gone we will each go our own separate ways and live and, and live the rest of our lives out sad and alone oh, it's just no. like, I know. boys
0: stay together it's okay
1: but, but it's 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 sort of really i mean there have been some some of the scholarship looks at this and goes this has got to be a joke this has got to be a joke. This is just too over the top. This is just, but then actually you don't putting words on stone is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Getting somebody to carve that stuff is expensive and time consuming. You know, you don't put that in non for, for a lark. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this may be a woman who neither of them would ever have really married. They may have had to go off and do other kinds of more respectable kinds of things with their lives. Mm. But, you know, there's something genuine about that relationship that actually exists and actually happened. And that is not the kind of monogamous relationship that, you know, maybe there are plenty of other of these things, but they end up breaking up because family concerns. You know, maybe this one gets captured because of um, poor Alia Potestas dying. Right. Rather than other kinds of pressures coming and ending that relationship, right? I mean, you know, we we just don't know. But the fact that it survives says that it's possible to do do things differently, should we mm-hmm. say?
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, where you find one, it, it would be a stretch to say where there's one, there is only one, right? Exactly.
1: It might not be common. It might not be something that everybody knows. You know, I mean, I was about to say not everybody knows somebody in the poly relationship. My guess is the people listening to this podcast probably know somebody <laughs> in a poly relationship. But, you know, it's probably something that is frequent enough that these kinds of arrangements, which they wouldn't have conceptualized as poly in the same kind of way. Obviously, that's a modern framework. but. Right. You know, the kind of relationships where you've got people living in structures that are outside that very traditional, heteronormative, patriarchal, this is the way it is. You know, there there is space for them in the Roman world.
0: Oh, man. Well, you know, speaking on, you know, looking at things in a modern framework, um, let's circle back a little bit more to the reception side of of your mm. research, the reception of classics, especially, uh you know, so you write and you teach a lot about monsters, you've worked on this book. Why do you think monster myths and stories have held such a strong place in pop culture, especially among queer and other marginalized communities? That was something that you were telling me a little bit about that you were... Really, rather surprised to find some some stuff in your research. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, there is a big field of monster studies. There's been a field of monster studies since about the 1990s. There was a really influential book by a guy called uh, Jeffrey Cohen. Um, he, and he had a really inf- influential article called uh, The Theses of Monster Studies. Uh, I've got the title wrong, but you'd be able to find it easily. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that kind of was like the foundational piece of this field. And one of the things that folks working in monster studies have found is recently, last 10 years or so maybe, is the way that um LGBT plus people um have used monsters as a reclamatory device. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Because um for so long, people who haven't hit the het norm get told you're a monster, you're awful, you're hideous. You know, it's it's a it's a label that's applied to people to indicate disapproval, which sounds like a really mild way of expressing how that actually lands if you're the person being told it, right? And I apologise right. if that isn't sort of quite getting across the, the violence that that term has been used for for people um, and the effects it has on them, particularly if, say, you're living in an isolated town, you are, as far as you know, the only person who feels this way or has this identity or, or, or desires in this fashion, and what you get told is you're a monster you know, that that the, the closet is there for the monster to hide in for a reason. Right. But over the last, say 5 say, five, ten years, there's been sort of a real movement for people who identify as LGBT to say, yes, I'm a monster. Hi. Right. <laughs> Coming <laughs> out of the closet. Uh, I mean, two really good examples of that. Uh, first of all, um, are Lady Gaga, uh, who calls herself the mother monster and then talks about all her little monsters deliberately reaching out to those kids who may be gay, lesbian, bi, trans, Uh, other identities uh, who do feel like they're the only ones and saying, no, hi, I I am Mother Monster and there are all these other people who are also part of the family. And sort of making that an identity that becomes a powerful family uniting one rather than a, no, I am all on my own in my own little cave with nobody Mm. to be to. So it sort of becomes a transformation of that metaphor into family. Um, and on the other hand, you have—I uh, don't know how I've, how many of folks uh, listening uh, li- watched the film *The Babadook*. I never watched it. feeling that I have a yeah. feeling it's a it's
0: a pretty big intersection. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, I never watched it. But
1: even I know that the Babadook became a massive queer symbol <laughs> precisely because the Babadook itself lived in a closet and was clearly about sexual orientation. And so, right. the prides after the Babadook came out, you had the babadook is Babashuk t-shirts <laughs> right, you had yeah. the posters you had people dressing as the babadook you know it, 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 the you b know. in lgbt stands for babadook exactly yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know there was there was sort of a massive sense in which um the 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 audience who watched these films went oh my goodness it's my sexuality on screen and tiny and black and with feathers um but you know <laughs> it, it it there's the, the, that sense of reclamatory. i don't think that could have happened 20 30 years ago i i don't mm. think that kind of popular sense of here is something that's been presented as the horror in the horror show and actually
0: (laughs) no that's us (laughs) we will take that (laughs) we will take it take it and make it ours I mean that's that goes back to I mean, it goes it goes back so long with um like the the tradition of queer coding in yeah. media, right? It's like queer people have latched on to villains for so long, because often that's that's the only time in which we saw these like markers of ourselves exactly represented back.
1: Exactly. Uh, and the whole move of that sort of being called by the Hays Code and the imposition of sort of, no, you can't possibly have a queer character on screen, Ah, oh, but we can give all their behaviours to their baddies. Um, right. Which turns up even in Disney, which is really upsetting mm-hmm. to my students yes, when I tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, right. so, so that is kind of what's happened with monsters. There is this kind of trend. And when I started looking into classical monsters, I was like, okay, so where's the LBDT stuff? And it wasn't. Hmm. It's really interesting. Classical monsters in mainstream media important note, (laughs) do not get used so much for this expression of queer identity, queer belonging, queer reowning, which is what I wrote in the book. And then <laughs> uh, I did the article that I've uh, just finished off and hopefully will be turning up at some point. Touch wood, touch wood, touch wood. Um, uh, in which uh, I had the chance to... So the, the editor asked me, would you would you go and, and write about classics and popular culture for this book? And I was like, well, I can't not, can I really? I am pos- pop- popular classics and monsters lady. This is my
0: chapter. Um, yes, please let me. And yes. you're going to pay me to do it? Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so um,
1: I then sort of went off and... Looked at what I could do. And I was like, well, what I didn't do in the book, and I kind of feel I really should have done, was look at some of the stuff that's happening with classical monsters away from the mainstream in other kinds of popular, much more popular media production. So I went and had a look at fan fiction and spent far too long looking at um, archive of our own. (laughs) And I will imagine that numbers of your readers are now going, oh, she did what? yeah,
0: yeah. I did. Congratulations, uh, your monster fuckery may have been uh, read and used <laughs> in research by Dr. Elizabeth Cloyne. <laughs>
1: You'll just have to check the citations. Um, but yeah, so uh, I um, went and had a look at this, and you are absolutely right, the monster fuckery was there. Lots of other things, monsters used for lots of other things as well, I should say. But all of the reclamatory narratives about reclaiming LGBT identity from monsterism, from being a monster in that negative way, all of those stories were turning up in the fan fiction, um, mm. which for me was like, oh my goodness, we're doing it somewhere. Thank heavens, off the map. But it was really interesting. I mean, for instance, um, Medusa. There's a whole group of Medusa. So I'm just sure your readers know this. I'm sorry if I'm sort of helping my audience suck eggs, um, teaching my audience <laughs> suck eggs. But um, there's a whole there's a whole group of Medusa stories which are really tender lesbian love stories. Mm-hmm and sort of really gentle and an affectionate and sort of healing from traumary. And, you know, and that all comes from the Medusa a better understanding, I think. And of course this is now taught much better than it was 50 years ago. Obviously we didn't have the internet in AO3 50 years ago, but we'll put that to one side. Um, <laughs> but the really the better understanding of Medusa's origin story as told by Ovid as being one of rape and violation And the number of people who have sort of taken that into sort of a space of reclamatory romantic identity healing is is intensely powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other side, there's the Minotaur. (laughs) Long pause. Long pause. Long pause as she works out how to say this academically. (laughs) Let us say that the Minotaur's raw animal energy and eroticism definitely comes through there are there, there's one lovely story which everyone will now go and find it's only a short one um in the tagline was you go into the labyrinth and what you find is romance <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's a really sweet lovely fluffy story um that isn't heavily full of monster fuckery but it's it's so it's such an interesting example because all the other ones of the minotaur are right right here we go <laughs> right um <laughs> And so so it's sort of it was a really interesting example to find somebody who was writing knowingly or otherwise against those kinds of literary conventions mm. um, as part of that range. Um but yeah, so th- the space at the moment where that reclamation of identity seems to be coming through is in um, that space rather than mainstream media, including video games. I mean, it's just not to say that video games, I'm working with a master's student at the moment who's doing her um, dissertation on computer games and sort of the family and, and mythic mm. computer game stuff. Really interesting work, really cutting edge stuff on our master's in classical reception. Um, and I am not a gamer. So I've been learning all of this through her, which is fantastic. And she, uh, the, but what sort of come out of that really is the way that these games are using LBGT identities in some sort of quite quite interesting ways. But again, it's always with the mythic characters. Mm-hmm. It's always with the mythic characters. It's not with, it's the, not monsters. with the monsters. Exactly. As opposed to, as I say, in other kinds of narrative where the monster becomes the figure, where people um, with LBGTA identities uh, sort of, place themselves and reclaim that space you know the figures of myth seem to be where people go so yeah it's 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 sort of an unexpected way in which classics Classical myth doesn't do quite what other things, which is one of the reasons for studying this stuff, right? Because right. otherwise you just go, oh, no, it's all exactly the same for all sorts of monster. And then there's just us sitting over here, hello, hello?
0: Please, pay, please pay attention. Hello.
1: Yeah, well, this, is, this is why the book was written, because when I sort of sat down and went, well, so what have people written about classical monsters and classical reception and sort of monster theory? And it was like, no, th- you don't exist. What do you mean we don't exist? You don't exist. I can give you serial killers. I can give you Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you all sorts of other things. I can give you zombies and werewolves. Do you like zombies and right. werewolves? Like, but, but no, I'd like some classical monsters, please. No, we have none of those. Exorcism. <laughs> Exorcism is good. No. Um, so, but, you know, it, 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 it's kind of these patterns that are really well understood in some fields, and then we don't fit into them as classical reception. The classical reception outputs don't fit into them. And yet they need to, we need to sort of be thinking about these things all at once.
0: Right. It, well, and it's, it's so interesting to see that they're, the, the world of like contemporary, like s- mainstream media, or even just like more produced media is is so far removed from the fandom experience right where it's Mm. I mean I I think you I think you said it best like as like as a fandom person right as somebody who is in the internet all the time (laughs) is you know you said uh in our last conversation uh, you could when you were starting to do this research and you you know you when you got into the fanfic you couldn't move without falling over gay medusas (laughs) is this line that I have in our notes from last time. <laughs> Pretty much. Which, which is kind of my experience as well. It's it's surprising to be like, oh, yeah, you know what? I really haven't seen that anywhere other than these, like, pockets of kind of microfiction. Um, you know, it's, it's you see it in fanfiction, but you also see these, like, posts on Tumblr. You know, oh, people yeah. Just, it, yeah. People just kind of create mythologizing within the mythology of, like, we've created this entire structure on the internet of queer Medusa that's just a trope at this point.
1: Exactly, but it hasn't made its way. Off that space, and I mean, this is one of the things I think that classical reception studies needs to do. I'm not sure these days I'm the person to do it, partly because of being too old, partly because of not being too plugged into a lot of those spaces. I mean, you know, nobody has to explain to me what slash is. I'm that much on the internet, (laughs) Um, but (laughs) I may have written that in the introduction of this article. That may make some people sad. Um, Anyway, uh, (laughs) but there's the um, the sense in which somebody at some point is going to need to actually get to grips with how this really vibrant, uncontrolled culture and use uncontrolled there is an unmediated. All you have to do to upload this stuff is to do it on your computer and press up and it's there. There's there's no form of, obviously some forms are more mediated than others. Some have beta reading systems or the rest of it, but you know, there are places like Archiver Own where you can just press upload and suddenly it's there for the internet to see, right? And the same with um, DeviantArt and, all, and Tumblr as well, all these other spaces. Where it's it is raw popular culture. There mm-hmm. is no intermediary. There is no intermediate space. Uh, no nobody doing quality control. Right. Um, and quality control of course cuts both ways. As anyone who spent any time on these things knows, there's some stuff that comes up and you get, and the next. And then there's stuff that comes through that's absolutely superb. Um, and my version, my, my sense of what is superb and what somebody else's, you know, they're not going to necessarily be the same, I hasten to add. But the point that there isn't that, there is no filter, there is no quality control, and I use scare quotes around that means that there's nobody saying, well, we can't have that because that's just too queer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody saying, well, we can't do that because that won't sell. Selling isn't the point. Um, that's not the point of this kind of creative enterprise and this, this, this environment. So it's a really different world in which that sense in which the classical monster's queerness can do its thing. And the fact that we I think if you look at classical monsters in mainstream, more curated media, more gate media, they're really used in a very kind of canon, foddery, hero-attached kind of way. Literature, not so much. The, r- the written word is much better about that kind of thing, but sort of the, vi- the visual film and television have really quite conservative, with a small c, senses about what monsters do. Uh, and it's really interesting that the flow-through hasn't quite got there. Uh, in some interesting ways as i say we have we, you know i i have yet to encounter i think uh a queer medusa if listeners would like to tell me where your queer meduses <laughs> in mainstream media are please tell me i should be delighted um but, uh, but this is the other thing about doing popular culture studies you're like no i think i found everything and then somebody pops up and goes there was this thing oh. right always more to find yeah. exactly which is delightful and also means that nothing is ever complete <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I mean, it means you know, it means you you will always have work, right? There's always um, more to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so where what does the actual text say about monsters and kind of what's the difference or kind of you know similarities that we're seeing between what is actually in the text and modern reclamation.
1: Yeah, so obviously uh, monsters from ancient Greek myth, um, starting with ancient Greek that Romans kind of inherit and build on it, are originally really interested in the division in between chaos and order. Uh, and uh, chaos is gendered feminine because obviously women And order is masculine and ordered and rational, and chaos is irrational and wants to destroy things. Yeah. Uh, So you get foundation myths. uh, You get, for instance, uh, Zeus, uh, the um, leader of the Olympians, fighting against various sources of of, of, uh, the giants, that kind of thing. And that becomes uh, about the Olympian rationality, bringing in the golden age of the Olympians and putting away all of that kind of irrational feminine. Stuff led by the monsters, and you know, who the monsters generated by monstrous women, um, monstrous uh, gods and titans. So, that whole vibe is really about the establishment of rationality and male authority. And that kind of keeps going. Um, And you also get sort of monsters that are about women's sexuality women women sort of as being dangerous if they're sort of um sexually free mind you this is where we if we're not careful we start having freud's view of medusa which is frankly <laughs> just disturbing uh, he goes for a whole vagina dentata um,
0: oh, geez. yeah well
1: yeah, yeah you haven't had to read him on it it's yeah
0: oh, freud yeah. Oh, Freud. Oh,
1: Freud. Um but I mean you don't quite have to go to that level of the uh, psychoanalytic um spectrum to uh, to sort of be able to see that There are far more monsters who are gendered as female in the ancient world and they're normally threatening men who are trying to do something like heroes, like bring order to the world in some kind of exciting way. Right. So that sort of is their their central thing. Um, Now, as monsters come through in the classical reception element, I mean, they are hugely adaptable. As I say, depending on what's going on with them, they do sometimes just end up riding on their heroes' coattails and they end up being cannon fodder. Because you can't tell the story of Theseus without the Minotaur, you can't tell the story of Perseus without Andromeda and Andromeda nearly beaten by the sea serpent. You know, you you've, but yeah, so you, you know, you get these heroes who bring monsters with them and then you kind of just have to have them. But at the same time, you also get the monsters finding spaces for themselves to represent other kinds of fears, other kinds of worries. The Minotaur, for instance, again, this is uh, psychoanalysis, is a lot to answer for here. Uh, does become a little bit of representation of um, sort of the uncontrolled male sexual ego um, and the violence it can do. Picasso has a whole series of posters of him as a Minotaur. Um, posters paintings, sketches, drawings um in which you know in some cases you know the Minotaur is just kind of like hanging out <laughs> um not not doing very much just like relaxing and then in others is sort of engaged and sort of quite disturbing quite disturbing activity so sort of mm. this is uh you know part of Picasso exploring his own maleness um but you know that kind of through, through that artistic endeavour and you know if that's how you conceptualise what you're doing that's how you conceptualise what you're doing and of course the whole again um, psychoanalytic idea that you know the monster within the maze you're always trying to search for the monster within the maze to conquer it and it turns out to be you all along
0: um, Ah. <gasps> uh, <laughs> But it, it's the ideas, opposite of like the lesson was the friends we made along the way or exactly, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know,
1: the, all these ideas have been really influential as ways of thinking about, for instance, human psychology, and sort of they then turn up in cultural practice with these kinds of weights on them. Because this, is when people think of the monitor, what do they think of? Oh, great, sexual threat, male sexual threat, aggressive right. male sexuality. Um, toxic masculinity, you know, it, it becomes a doorway into other kinds of concerns and other kinds of um, worries. Um, you have got monsters in the ancient world who represent this stuff. Uh, you have the centaur who represents the dangers of hyper masculinity because um, hmm. they, if they, they like to fight, they don't listen to reason, they like to drink too much, they try and abduct women. They're generally bad news, apart from Chiron, who is the tutor of lots of heroes, who sits in a cave right. and goes, No! <laughs> Don't talk to me about my family.
0: <laughs> stop, um, stop making me look bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I will not come to the weekend cookout because I know what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I will not bail you out again. Anyway, so he is sort of the exception that proves the rule and all the other centres mm. are sort of over the top. But they, again, have that kind of over the top, uncontrolled masculinity, uncontrolled verge to violence, uncontrolled push to, uh, you know, excess of every possible kind and they're countered by heroes who are meant to have all of this kind of stuff in control. Except, mm. you know, in some authors they have it more under control than others. Let's put it that way. So yeah, those kinds of core concerns about gender performance and what all of that means, again, they
0: don't go away. Right. And and leave, you know, plenty of room for ripe interpretation. And reimagination, exactly. And as we deconstruct them, yeah. Oh, uh, well. I would, I mean, I would love to continue talking with you all day. Um. <laughs> I feel like uh, you know we both I feel like we will have a tendency to do that we might actually be here all day but uh, I kind of wanted to you know lead us into the wrapping up of things and just kind of ask you what projects are you working on now is there anything new and exciting in the pipeline that you are really looking forward to
1: okay so uh, the I should say the monster book is already out it's called Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture it's uh, from bloomsbury and if i may say so the paperback is extremely reasonably priced
0: <laughs> um, we'll, we'll uh we'll put some put some links in our show notes for this episode uh the uh so there's the chapter as
1: i said on fan fiction which is going to be in a big companion for oxford so that will be out at some point she says i'm i'm not the volume editor i don't have to care <laughs> i just send my text off and then magically it happens somebody else has it." I've got another chapter that I'm doing about historian on Valerius Maximus and a post-colonial reading, basically saying, so this whole thing, this is basically just like imperialism, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) As opposed to Romans are awesome. There's actually a lot of imperialism going on in this text. Again, it's one of those things where you're like, this is blatantly obvious and... Nobody's ever written about it. So here we go. Um, uh, The current, well, there are two current big projects. One of them, the serious academic one. Again, you'll spot a trend here. There is a philosopher called Musonius Rufus uh, who lives a little bit after Seneca. So he kind of spans the first and second century AD and we have fragments of him. He was hugely influential in his own time, and he's just kind of fallen out of things. So I am co-editing a big volume with uh, my colleague, John Sellers of Ro Holloway, of essays about him. And I'm doing a chapter on um, If it's ever right to disagree with your parents, Hmm. which is all kinds of fun, Um, not least as it seems to be the only text I think I've ever read that's actually talked about what happens when you're like old enough to have your own opinions according to stoicism. So you've reached the, 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 the age at which you can have rational thought. Mm. Um, but also you kind of have to deal with your dad it, 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 within a Roman hierarchical system right, where the part yeah. of Femilius is at the top of it. I don't think I've ever read anything that's actually addressed this question before. Like so that
0: tension. Exactly. How
1: do you do that? are says, there are all sorts of mis- answers Missonius gives, but he also goes, and by the way, did you know that Zeus is top dad? And... <laughs> Oh, don't tell Zeus, him that. Well, having Zeus, have, oh dear God, that was not a don't, good choice of word, was it? No. no, no, I'm um, just saying.
0: Yeah, don't don't tell Zeus that he's top dad.
1: Bad <laughs> things will happen. Anyway, Zeus is <laughs> chief dad, boss dad, and that means that he is what he is a dad wants for you is more important than what your mortal dad wants for you. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I'm writing that and we're doing that volume, and that's really interesting because nobody has written about Missonius for seriously for years. Um, Uh, I say that a couple of really good things have come out of the French tradition, but yeah, you know, as a rule, he's not thought about, it's like, why? Uh, But the other thing I've been doing is I'm currently doing a little bit of work for Dorling Kindersley who are doing a new Illustrated Rome volume on, uh, volume on Illustrated Rome, which is going to be full of beautiful pictures and fantastic text and, you know, really, really quite lush. Uh, And I've got to do the sex, love and relationship spread for that, which I'm really, I know is quite exciting. Um oh, cool. so Alia Patostas turns up in that I'm glad to <gasps> say. <Yay>! Yes.
0: <laughs> oh. Oh, I I'm going to look forward to that. Be looking out for it, but you'll have to let us know when that happens. Well, I mean, I figured, you know, before I I ask you where people can find more about you and your work if they want to snoop on the internet, mm-hmm. um other than just, you know, finding you in your books. As as a final question, you know, we've been circling around this kind of the whole the whole conversation, but I like to ask this to a lot of folks that I talk to in these kinds of episodes is, why do you think it's important specifically to look to history for ways that we can interpret and influence the future? Big question. Big question.
1: So I think history is valuable for a lot of reasons. History helps us tell stories, helps us understand how we've got to where we are. If we understand the historical path that's got us from X to Y, to where we are now, we can actually understand how we've got here. and you know, I mean, and that means actually looking at it properly. It means not accepting the history that the Victorians or earlier generations decided was the history. You know, right. as I say, actually understanding from a, a queer perspective that there's a huge range of relationships going along in Rome. Yes, okay, it's highly patriarchal, it's highly structured. But at the same time, lots of other stuff is happening, actually. Um, so having an understanding that there's more diversity, there's more difference, there's more variety than you know that shut down version of the world. And what does that do? Well, actually, it lets us see that shut down versions of the world are not the only versions that we have. And it helps us ask good questions about what might we do differently, which is not to say the ancient world was a lovely, wonderful place. I'm very glad to be living in the 21st <laughs> century with medicine and... <laughs> other things. And, oh, I don't know, being able to vote, being able to go and have influence on the political system and, you know, uh, as a cis woman, all of that kind of stuff, which would not have been possible for me in ancient Rome. Right. So, you know, there are all sorts of things that, you know, it's not to suggest that everything in the ancient world is groovy, but how they cope with stuff, how they approach things, the kinds of things that they tell us, I mean, we've then got better questions to ask of our own time and to think about what kind of imagining might we take forward. And this is sort of something from the classical reception side that's really exciting because, you know, you sort of ask, well, what does this use of the classical tell us about the culture that's using it? And you both then can say, and then what questions does that mean? We can now take back to antiquity and ask that material that we couldn't ask before. But we can also say, and what are the problems with that? What happens if we deal with it differently? Mm. What other versions of the ancient world can we show? And that's how you end up wading through queer Medusas.
0: (laughs) Swimming through, (laughs) wading through. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this co- I've had so much fun in this conversation it's been lovely. It's been and great. I, I really hope people enjoy this I get to go you know I get to when we hang up I get to go back to a you know like a Xena discord friend group and be like so I got to talk about class I got to talk to a classicist about monster fucking today guys my life's great um-
1: <laughs> I was about to say there is less monster fucking in Xena than you expect which is also true true there is th-
0: and also multiple centaur births
1: yeah uh, the the book has bits on the centaur births
0: <laughs> in Xena beautiful. in Xena, and
1: in Hercules because there are there
0: are parallels oh yes it's yeah yeah anyway that's yeah <laughs> i know yeah i know we're we're like we're like skirting into (laughs) into (laughs) tangents and and, and entire entire more conversations well um so yeah needless to say uh, it's been a joy to talk with you thank you so much where can people you know respectfully stalk you on the internet uh to find out more about what you're doing
1: okay so the best place to find me uh is twitter where i am liz gloin um uh and that is where i am most of the time i also have a blog which is uh, liz gloin on wordpress uh my last name is g l o y n do not put any e on the end people are tempted to <laughs> Um, so yeah those are the best two places to find me
0: awesome I hope that folks will go and check that out and check out your work and buy your book and uh, (laughs) I hope that this is not the last time that we talk I'm sure that there will be many more opportunities for us to connect because as is obvious like we just keep wanting to talk to each other so
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's been lovely to join you thank you for having me